Well, if you are new, welcome. My name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. We are glad that you are here. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back that are the same version that I'm reading from. I would encourage you to get a Bible, put your nose in the Bible, get your face in the good book. Uh, this is God's Word. It has the power to transform us, the power to change us. If you don't own a Bible and you want one, just come and ask me, say, hey, can I take one of these Bibles home? I would love to make that our gift to you as a chapel family. Uh, so before we get into Colossians, let's pray, and we're going to hop in this morning. Father, I thank you that you would inspire your word to bring about change in our lives. God, I thank you that you would relentlessly and radically pursue us, broken sinners. That you would have an unconditional love for us even when we try to run away. God, I thank you that you are a rock for our lives in the midst of good times and especially in the midst of difficult times. God, I think of chapel family members that are in pain right now, that are hurting, that need you to be their rock. Be that for them this morning. God, show extra measures of grace and mercy to those who need your shoulder to cry on. Open your word to us, I pray in Jesus' name. All God's kids said, amen, amen. So if you, if you have a Bible, book of Colossians, it's toward the end of your Bible. You're going to go all the way to the New Testament. And you're, if you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, keep going. You're going to go through Romans, Acts, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's right there, Colossians. It's four chapters, so it's small. Now you can read Colossians from uh, start to finish in 15 minutes. Everyone say 15 minutes. Okay, so that's your homework assignment this week. If you cannot find 15 minutes to read the book of Colossians, you can also listen to it in less than 15 minutes. Everyone say 15 minutes. Okay, so now you know how long it takes to read this entire book of Colossians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Everyone say Paul. Okay, just making sure we're on the same page. Paul was in prison. This was at the end of Paul's life, around 62 AD, that he wrote this book to the church in Colossae. We call it Colossians. And in this book, he wrote uh, Colossians, Philemon and Philippians and Ephesians all around the same time. And as he was writing this book, toward the end of his life, he was in prison. He wanted to make sure that the Colossian church knew the foundations of Christianity. Now, this book, although it can be read in how many minutes? Just making sure you're listening. We are going to spend a little bit of time in it. We've been going through, we went through um, the beginning of Acts until the Holy Spirit came. When the Holy Spirit uh, was showing up in Acts and changing Paul's life, we jumped to a Holy Spirit series. Then we went into Christmas, and then we went to the New Year State of the Church series. And now we're going to chew on Colossians. And I've, I've really tried to take my time before we got to a study like this, because when I say chew on Colossians, this book that we could read in 15 minutes, and hopefully you all do this week, we're going to be in it probably until May 8th. And when I say probably, it means I already plotted it out. So you're going to be suffering through this book. So we're going to go through it at a speed that I think is very good. But I, I want us, before we get into this book study, to understand a few things. That churches can have different methods and different means of doing things. However, if we're not rooted in God's word, if we're not plugging our lives into this book, then the rest of it is just going to be maybe some inspirational stuff. And I've heard some inspirational sermons that got me to obey something for about a week or two or three days. But, but God's word is the only thing that can bring about lasting change. So this is why we're doing a book study, because God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word can pierce to divide joint and marrow. God's word can bring about change in our hearts. And then uh, lastly, I want to read a verse uh, about preaching. This is, comes from 2 Timothy 4. This is why I preach. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is 
to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The reason why I want to teach the word is because it forces me to only talk about what God is talking about and to not get off on tangents that are what I want to talk about. This is why I think there are so many churches, there are so many inspirational speakers, and they speak about topics that maybe we do need to hear about, but you guys don't need a sermon on social media and why it's evil, and you're not going to ever get that from me because I'm a Twitter addict. You don't need another sermon on exercise and dieting plans because you get enough of those sermons on Pinterest every year from January to February before everyone quits their resolutions. What we need is God's word to bring about lasting change. And in this book of Colossians, we're going we're gonna to dive deep. We're going to dig deep. Today, we're going to cover only two verses. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's it. That's all we're going to study today. So, when you guys say hi to someone in the morning, how do you normally say it? Hey. What do we say in our country all the time? A lot of people say this. What's up? Well, I don't say that. Maybe when I was a little bit younger. What's up? I can't do that now because I'm getting older. Like, now you have to say hello, you know. How are you doing? You know, not like, how's it, bro? That's the Hawaiian thing. You just throw up the shaka and say that. But none of you would know that because we're on the wrong coast. Anyway, this is not just a greeting. When God inspired his word, Paul, when he was writing this out, did not waste words. He's not just doing this to say, hi, church, grace and peace be with you. It's not the standard thing that we can just throw away. This is how Paul starts all of his letters. And what's very important that we have to get right in the beginning is that Paul wants to encapsulate all of his letter in two words, grace and peace. And here's how it works. Grace is the root of of the gospel. Grace is where everything starts, and peace is the fruit of the gospel. If you have the good news of Jesus, that's the word gospel means good news, if you have that in you, your life will produce peace. Now, most of us, most humans I talk to, crave more peace. Most humans I talk to would say, my life is not filled with as much peace as I would like. Whether it's a job situation, a relationship situation, most people are searching for that. And a lot of people come to church to find those answers. But here's one thing that I think we miss. I think too many people try to get the peace, the fruit of the gospel, before making sure that they have the root of the gospel, the grace. Now, in Colossians, we're going to look at the stature of it, the significance of it, and we're going to look at the structure of it. So everyone say structure. Okay. Do you guys know how balance works? Anybody know how balance works? I don't really know how it works. All I know is this. Uh, I'm, I've been te- I taught GLOW this last week. That's our student ministry, and I get to teach it for two more weeks. I had a blast teaching GLOW. These middle schoolers, they have so much energy, and they still give them like Red Bulls and stuff, which is ridiculous <laughs> to me. But at GLOW, these kids had these skateboards. And now I, I know what you're thinking. You look at me, and you think, maybe he could skate, maybe he couldn't. Well, I grew up in the water. I grew up in Southern California. I grew up on a skateboard. I don't remember a time pre-skateboard. So I hopped on one of these long boards, and I just jumped on it and started going. And the middle schoolers are like, wow, you can actually skate. And I'm like, yeah, 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 let me see you go. And we handed the board um, to, you know, a jock. Let's just be honest. That's what he was. And it's okay, you guys. I love jocks. I used to be a jock too. But usually you don't give jocks things with four wheels. Because the athletes, they're good at running and moving and shifting and throwing. 
But as soon as you put an athlete that wasn't raised on a skateboard or a surfboard, you throw them on top of one, all of a sudden, it's like they can feel that the earth is spinning at 900 miles an hour. And you see them try, man, they're trying so hard. There's two of them. I was just cracking up. One of them's here today. I'm not going to point them out. And he was trying. He was going for it. And I said, you know, it's just a dangerous thing. This is a broken wrist waiting to happen. And you could tell that the balance was off. You could tell that, that as he put one foot down, his other foot didn't know what to do. Now, I don't think about that anymore. If you grew up in the ocean, if you grew up surfing, snowboarding, skating, whatever it was, you just have a feel for it, and you can't really explain it. It's like that moment when you just hop on a board and you know what you're doing, similar to when you're driving. Some people just know how to handle a car. They know that this much wheel turns this much. You give a car to a brand-new teenager, what do you do? You get terrified. You bring them to our parking lot. They do donuts in our grass. That's how that se session goes down. But but in Paul's books, we, all, we must realize that there's always a balance. Every one of his books has a balance. Colossians is four chapters long, four Bible chapters, which is only like a little bit of text. The first two chapters are all about what Jesus has done for you and me. The last two chapters are the pragmatics, what we are to do based on what Jesus did for us. Now, here's where I think we must not get this wrong. We can't jump to the practical how-tos, the imperatives, the commands of God, before we let our souls and our lives soak in the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And unfortunately, this is what happens, because here's how we can approach Christianity. My marriage is bad. Let me look up Bible verses about marriage. You look them up. You go to Colossians 3 and 4. Here's how husbands are to act. Here's how wives are to act. And we try to do that in our own strength without realizing that every one of Paul's letters, he starts by saying, here's what Jesus has done. You have to get this first. If you miss this, the rest of it is going to be a train wreck in your life. If you don't understand that Jesus is all your value, that Jesus loves you no matter what, the rest of your life is going to suffer the repercussions if you just simply try to be good on your own. So this is what Colossians is. One and two is the indicatives, what Christ has done. Three and four is the imperatives, what we are to do now that we are in Christ. Now here's, here's me. I love grace. You guys know this. I have grace written on this arm. This is getting what we don't deserve. I have mercy written down here. This is not getting what we do deserve. I got a new tattoo right here. That's why it's all shiny. And it was super fun. I got it yesterday, and it says, Tetelestai. It's what Jesus said on the cross. It means it is finished, paid in full. And I didn't think in advance how many times I'd get to preach sermons just because I got a new tattoo. As the guy was writing it out, he finished it up, and he goes, by the way, what does that mean? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. let me tell you. And I went to Walgreens to buy the ointment, and I'm just like, now I'm just reaching it out. I'm like a girl with her engagement ring. I just want to show it off, you know? I'm like, let me tell you what this, let me buy this ointment. Do you want to know what that means? And I'm just preaching. I'm like, it's finished. Your sin's paid in full if you come to Jesus by faith. Now, if we don't get that grace, it breaks down so much of what Christianity is truly about. And I have this fear that church people are afraid of grace. I don't have a fear. I really have a tangible experience of seeing Christians anti-grace people. And I've been on staffs where we're talking about the good news of Jesus, and there's that, that syndrome that we've talked about. It's called the grace but syndrome. Not two T's at the end of that but, although I'd like to call it two T's. It's when people say, yes, we're saved by grace, but we still have to do this, this, and this. And I will relentlessly tell those people, no, we are saved by grace, period. But then they say, no, if you preach too much grace, people will sin. And I always tell them, People were sinning before I preached grace. They just knew how to hide it. And when you give people grace for the first time in their life, they're free to fail. When people understand that they're fully loved and accepted because what Jesus has done, not what we do, then they're free 
to say, this is who I truly am. And the pressure of not having to hide anymore is a pressure that I think all of us are craving and all of us are afraid to let out of the, the cage because we don't think that others will still accept us, which may be true, but there's one who will if you come to him by faith. Grace is this dangerous concept. Grace is painful at times. Grace means the free gift, getting what we don't deserve. I, I, love, I love pastoring this church. I had someone recently who knew people from the chapel, and if they knew you, I don't know. They didn't tell me who it was. But they said, we, we don't want to come to the chapel because we know a few of the people that go to your church, and they are, they're pretty bad sinners. And I said, well, you really don't want to come because if you come, you're going to meet the other 155 bad sinners, including me. You don't want to come to the chapel if, if you think they're coming and they're still sinning outside of here because we're all sinning. Some of, my, some of my people, they know how to pretend and hide it better because they grew up in church. Some of them are just coming in the doors. They don't know any different. Some of them think that the communion is actually wine and they try to down a couple cups. Some of them find out it's grape juice and they just let it go right by. Some of them still go out to bars and I'm okay with Some of them are still wrestling with their sexual identity and, and I'm okay with that because they're pressing toward Jesus. Some of them have committed sins that would make you shake in your boots and you wouldn't want to talk to them and I'm okay with that because Jesus is the center of their life now and they're slowly moving toward him and it's a gift. It's not something that they've earned and worked at. But when you start talking like this, when you start talking about how radically God loves us no matter where we've been, no matter where you are today, that scares usually religious people. That scares Christians because we lose our control. We lose our ability to say, no, if you're not this good, then you're not that accepted. And, and let, let me just make it clear. I am for the things of God. I am pro us being obedient. I want us to be the most obedient church that has ever existed. However, however, I will not use shame and guilt to produce obedience in you. I will not use shame and guilt. My wife asked me recently, uh, why are these types of churches always full on, on these days and not the other days? Specifically referring to a few different sects of Christianity. And I said, because they use guilt so well that if you don't go at least a couple times a year, you, you will literally fear your life will be in hell forever. Or how do, you, how do they get people to pray this way? Well, if you don't use guilt and shame, to, if, you, if, you, if you use guilt and shame, people have to do that. I could guilt you guys into doing things if I wanted to. It wouldn't be right, because here's what using guilt and shame does. Using guilt and shame is using one pile of sin to try to get rid of another pile of sin. So yes, you may stop lusting, you may deal with your anger issue because you're terrified that God is gonna smite you down with his almighty smiting power, but at the end of the day, that's actually not going to remove sin from your life. I'm just playing the sin replacement game. Sure, get rid of this, but wallow in guilt forever. Sure, get rid of this, but now you're going to be ashamed. Sure, get rid of this, but now you're just going to constantly be wondering if God actually loves you. The good news of Jesus is that in him, if you have your faith and trust in him, grace is yours. The root is settled. And now it can finally produce the fruit of that life. If the grace that's in your life says, I love you no matter what, the next time you sin, you get to remind yourself, no, he loves me no matter what. And the irony of spiritual growth is that people have told me, I don't know how many times, if you, if you tell people grace, they're going to keep on sinning. But here's what I found to be true. The more I tell people the law, they keep on sinning. The more I try to tell people, this is the list, and you have to obey this list, and if you don't, you're failing God, 
that's when I see people sin. Because it is hard to follow God's laws. The, God, the purpose of God's law was not to get us to say, I'm going to follow them perfectly. It was to get us to the point where we said, I'm at the end of my rope. I can no longer do it. Every church has done this that I'm aware of that I've been at. We do the Ten Commandments survey. And all that I ever discover at every church that I've been at is that every church is full of adulterer, lying, stealing people. We all have done those sins. I mean, the lying one for sure. Most of us have done some sin of coveting. We've wanted something that's not ours. God's given somebody a car that we wanted. It drives by us in the freeway. You think, oh, I'd love to have that. Or maybe the life, coveting someone else's life. We live in Fishhawk, where the whole purpose of life in Fishhawk is to show off how awesome your life is on the outside. Do you know, you know what used to be the most valued thing when you were buying a new home? How well the home was built. That used to be the number one priority when people were looking at buying a new home. They wanted to know, is this home sound? Is it going to last? How long is it going to last for? Do you know what the number one thing is now when, when new homeowners are looking to buy a house? Curb appeal. They want curb appeal. They want it to look fly from the front. The nice bushes, the shutters. And I think too often we do that with our spiritual life. On the inside, there's no furniture, there's nothing growing, the walls are rotting away. But if we can put up a good curb appeal, if we can let people think that I've got this all together, then we think that that's all that matters. And we know at the end of the day it's not. We know that the walls are falling down around us. We know that the plumbing is leaking all over. And so many of us are stuck in that mode. Well, here today, Paul wants you to know that if you get grace, you can finally open your door and let people in. If you understand that God loves you no matter what, and let me be clear, most people in your life will not love you no matter what. I know that Valentine's Day is coming up and it's super sentimental and we tell our spouses, I'll love you no matter what. Every spouse has said that to their spouse before every divorce at some point. I'm just being honest. This is the brutal honesty. There's only one person who will love you no matter what. And there's only one way to get that no matter what kind of love. And there's only one path that will give you the peace that comes from that. Because if I'm accepted and I have a no matter what type of love from God toward me because of Jesus, guess what happens next time my wife lets me down? I still have somewhere to turn. If my wife is my no matter what love, when she lets me down and if I was treating her as my functional savior, my life is crushed. If my children are my no matter what kind of love and they let me down, my life is crushed. When I was out getting this tattoo yesterday, uh, Amy told the kids that where I was. And I came home and Jackson, my oldest son, he had drawn a tattoo of Jesus on his chest. And he had drawn other tattoos in his arm and he asked me to draw this tattoo in his arm. So if you go see him, he's got a little blue tetelestai on his arm this morning and a Jesus stick figure on his chest. And the holes in Jesus' hand are like as big as his head. He wanted to be like me. I felt like, like this was a no matter what kind of love. He loved me. I talked to my other son, Silas. Hey, buddy, do you want me to do a tattoo on you? Your brother did some tattoos. No, daddy, I don't want tattoos. I don't like tattoos. Are you scared of needles? No, I don't even want a marker tattoo. I felt rejected. I said, you don't love me. You don't want to be like me. My daughter, I don't know, she's giving people tattoos because she's so angry and can get to the knives now. But, but there was that small sense where, where I really felt that. I felt like one of my sons wants to be like me and the other doesn't. 
fine, you want to be like your mother? Do that, whatever. <laughs> and that was my heart for that moment, forgetting that, that the approval I need comes from Jesus. You know, the whole tattoo thing, I, was, um, I, got, uh, I did an interview with a, a ministry called the God, God's Men of Influence, and I'm, we're giving away three free books if you want to do it, and he's, he asked me back to do a Bible Q&A. So if you have any Bible questions, uh, email them to me. We'd love to do them. It's a free-for-all, any Bible question, and I'll let you guys know when that recording is going to be up. But uh, as we were doing the Q&A, the guy stopped me at one point because we were on Skype, and he said, so I noticed you have tattoos. Tell me about that. Because he comes from a more conservative church, and I said, you know, um, I like tattoos. And he said, well, in the Bible it says you shouldn't get tattoos. I'm like, okay, you show me where it says that. And he says, right here in Leviticus. And I said, okay, read a few verses before that. It says, don't shave your sideburns, you sinner. Okay. Well, is it okay to get tattoos? I'm like, I don't know. But the Bible seems to say in Revelation 19 that when Jesus comes back, he's going to have king of kings and lord of lords in his thigh. And he said, well, yeah, but I've heard that that could be translated his robe. And I said, well, I've heard that a Baptist translated that version. Because it doesn't say on a robe. It says on his thigh. Here's what, here's what we want to do. We want to take grace. We want to take this concept that God loves us in Jesus. And that even if this is a sin, that God's going to tell me later, Ryan, that was actually against my word and my will, but Jesus died for it. I'm like, okay, he died for it. Can you remove it? I'm dead now. Give me a new one. When my tattoo artist said, are you sure you're ready to have this forever? I said, I don't have it forever. I just have it till I die. Could be tomorrow, could be 10 years. I don't know. Because when I get my new body, these are gone. When I get my new body, I, it's, all, it's all finished. The grace and mercy, I don't look at them on my arm to be reminded. I look around the corner and say hi to Jesus. Now, if we don't get that soaked in grace, if we're drawn to the law, if we're drawn to this, here's what we do. We say, welcome, my name is so-and-so. If you fight for peace, if you follow the laws, then you'll get grace. And that's what the majority of people in churches and religions do. First you earn it, then you get it. Christianity is the only one that says you get it first and it's free. Now you can have the peace from God. So we have this structure, this grace and peace. We have the law and grace. I want you to obey, but I want you to obey from the right motive. I want you to obey because you've been gripped by the love that God has for you. I don't want you to obey because you're afraid and ashamed. I want you to see that you fall short of God's standard and that you need Jesus to love you and come into your life and break through the hard places. Colossians. Colossians stands as a book that's going to root us in Jesus. I love this. When Jared made this, he said, could we just not do a set change for a while because we had gone through the old one and then the Christmas one and then this one. And I said, brother, you can keep Jesus up here until next Christmas when I'm going to put it on my roof. And, uh, and I love it because at the chapel, we're all about Jesus. And in this book of Colossians, it's called the most Christ-centered epistle in the Bible. It is all about Jesus. I want us to get a taste of what it will be like as we're working through this book. Colossians 1.10 says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're going to please God in him. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. By Jesus all things were created. All things were created through him, through him, and for him. If you wonder why you were created, it was by Jesus and for Jesus. In Colossians 1.19 it says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.20 says, Through him he reconciled to himself all things. 
Now, any dads in the room that have younger children with me? Your kids are like under 16. Okay, there's this great thing about being a dad. And I see a couple of you guys that raised your hand. You're like also huge, which is awesome. Uh, no offense to the small dads out there. But I love that my son wants to be protected by me. I love that when he's right here, he's got zero fear whatsoever. I love it that when he gets afraid and he's far away from me, he runs to me and grabs my leg. I don't know what it's going to be like. Some of you dads who are older than me, you've got the teenage sons, and they probably try to be tough. But for now, I'm just soaking it in. Because right now, if, if I'm out there in the lobby and you scare one of my kids, they run to me and they grab my leg because they know that I will mess you up if they try to hurt them. And I love that. And this, this concept in Colossians is everything is through Jesus, in Jesus, covered by Jesus, around Jesus. When you come to God at the end of your life, the goal isn't to say, look how good I did. God, accept me because of how awesome I was. Because the Bible says your good deeds, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Filthy rags before God. And if we're being totally honest, and you're going to have to explain this to the young kids later, the word that they're using there for filthy rags is actually a woman's time of the month rags. That puts a new disgusting spin on it. God says, you want to know how good it is? It's this good. What you need is a Savior who stands around you, who covers you, so that when you die, all you do is point to him. So that when you die, it's not this, I did so good, God, it's Jesus did so good, and it's good that I'm in him, and that he works through me, and around me, and covers me, and makes everything right. Jesus is the person whose leg we hide behind and say, thank you, Jesus, for getting me here. And when you can do that, not only when you stand before God in death, but every single day of your life, when you can come by Jesus and grab him and say, thank you, because I could not get through this day without yelling at my coworker if I didn't have you to grab onto. Thank you. I could not get through this day with the massive amount of things going terribly wrong in my life. Man, there's some situations going on right now that I've been praying for. And uh, one of them is a son who got injured in a boating accident. I, I can't fathom what it's like for a mother to, to be wondering if her son's going to be okay when he gets in an accident and has to be life-flighted from one hospital in Wachula, something, to Tampa General. All I know is that when I get those texts and calls, they're getting helicoptered into Tampa General. It's usually not good. And I don't know what a mother feels in those moments, but I do know this. If you can't grip onto Jesus in those moments, I don't, I don't know how you make it through. I don't know how you make it through. And I've been in ER rooms where I've been with people that don't know Jesus, and they don't make it through. They lose will, the will to go on. They don't understand how they're going to make it another day. I don't understand how people go through and they suffer tremendous loss without having Jesus to grip onto. Not only I need you, Jesus, for the afterlife, but I need you for this day. This is the grace and the peace that can come into your life. When we flip the switch in Colossians and get to chapter 3, we're going to get to how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a, a better family. But unless we soak ourselves in these first two chapters, that piece will not make sense for us. Unless we let our hearts marinate in the good news of Jesus, when we get to those parts, it's going to be a difficult and tedious and burdensome task. Okay, everyone say grace. Here's what I want you to remember. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Everything that God has 
is yours in Jesus. I don't think we get that concept enough. Let me say it this way. Christianity is not about earning God's riches. It's about realizing what you already have more and more. Every one of us here that are in Jesus, that come to Jesus by faith, you are God's child. The Bible calls you an heir to the kingdom. The Bible calls you co-heirs with Christ. The Bible calls you saints. You are a saint of God. In the Catholic Church, you can only call old dead dudes saints. But today I can look at people and say, Raffi the saint. Now, Raffi may not feel like a saint today because Raffi may have done something yesterday or the day before. Raffi may have punched somebody at glow, allegedly. But the mystery that we have in Christ is that we live in the, the already, it's called the already not yet. We are already fully paid for. We are already fully saints. We are already fully sinless in the sense of God's perspective down, but we still have sin in this horizontal plane of life. But we are saints. You are beloved of God. Nothing you do if you're in Jesus can shake God's love from you. Nothing. I was telling somebody before service today, you know, I, I love social media. It's so much fun. And they said, yeah, because you get to know all about the people that are in your church. I said, absolutely. And the best part is when I friend them and they accept my friend request, they remember that they friended me only for about two weeks. And then they totally forget. And then I get to see, man, that they curse like a sailor, that they love going to this bar, and that in the words of someone else, not me, they dress like hoochies. And I don't know what kind of friends this guy has, but must be some really tall dudes that are good looking. I don't know. And I said, I love it for one reason, that finally people get to see that when I say we're saved by grace and God meets you where you are, but he loves you so much he won't leave you where you are, that I actually mean it. Because I, I know as a pastor, my gig, it comes with a lot of baggage. Like people don't want to invite you out places. People invite you to go to like Disneyland. People invite you to go to like a bar mitzvah. People invite you to go have tea and coffee. I rarely have friends that are like, dude, let's go to the bar and get some Jack Daniels. Never. Like, that never happened. Maybe once it's happened here. And then they didn't even follow through on it. I was really disappointed. Because I'm a pastor. I get it. I, and and I, I know that I'm held to a higher standard, but that's not between me and you. That's between God and me. But here's what I love about, about the Facebook reality is that Facebook, we're, we forget that a human being is on the other side at times. We, we feel like it's just this machine that's going to approve or disapprove of us, which is why, like, no matter where you are on social media, we all have that number of likes that if your post or picture gets it, you just warm up on the inside. I remember that. Oh, my, I'd put, put a picture out when Facebook was early on. I got five people that like my picture. Now if five people like my picture, I'm like, nobody loves me. I post a status that I think is particularly witty and humorous. Man, I better get it. I'm going to get at least 40 likes for this one. I get over 100 likes on something. I'm like, oh, I found my meaning in life. Who needs Jesus now? I would never say that. But boy, I think my heart feels that. That's why we have notifications turned on. That's why we can't let our Facebook badge, our Instagram likes get past 10. Because we want to say, I've got 10 notifications. I am well loved today. And Jesus is saying, you were well loved before those 10 notifications but we crave it, our heart wants it so bad 
that will look for our approval and significance in far lesser things and forget that Jesus is up there saying, I've got a no matter what kind of love for you right now, and it's in Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. So next time you uh, do this, actually, let's do it right now. Look to the person next to you and say, you are a saint of God. Okay, now I know that you just lied because you looked to your husband and wife and you're like, you're not. You're definitely not. Which is why some of you like dip down in volume on saint. You're like, you are a son of God. Son of God. You can't even get it out. It hurts so bad. But it's, if you're in Jesus, if the person you looked at is in Jesus Christ and God's in them, around them, is working through them, created them for his purposes, not ours, you can wake up every morning and say that. You can remind yourself of that fact when your spouse is getting on your nerves in the worst way possible. We've talked about this before, right? When you're dating, you're not really dating the person that's sitting across the table from you. You're dating the projection of who they want you to see. When you get married, that veil comes down one year at a time. Year one, they learn how to push your button, right? We talked about this. Year two, they learn how to push two buttons. By the 10th year, they're master symphonies and they know every red anger button in your life. They're like Beethoven for anger. And they just know how to push your buttons and they like it. In that moment, somebody needs marriage counseling. In that moment, in that moment, when they're driving you nuts, you, you need to remind yourself, this is a saint of God. I don't know how God did it. I don't understand why God did it. But I know that they do love Jesus and that Jesus, more importantly, loves them no matter what. That changes a lot of things. Man, does that change a lot of things. That changes a lot of things for me with my kids. At our old house, we had lower ceilings. And I'm six and a half feet tall. And we had, I don't know, however tall this is, nine foot. So I used to, when I'd get angry, I wouldn't want to like act in anger with my children. So I'd grab them by the little chest and I'd hold them up in the ceiling. And I'd start praying that God would give me less anger. And they're scared. They know dad's angry. And I'm not like pushing them through the ceiling. I'm just holding them there because I don't want them to escape because they, they run to the blankets and hide. So I'm holding them. I'm praying. I put them down, and there's nothing more scary than when your dad can palm your chest, right? So I'm putting them all the way down. Now, that, that's not the way that God acts with us. God's not palming us by the chest. Some of us feel like, well, when I get the flat tire, when I lose my job, when my marriage isn't going well, when my kid's not obeying, when, I, when I'm not getting loved like I think I should be loved on Facebook for that amazing post, we feel like that God must be angry at us, and he's trying to press us against the wall, and he's, he's looking at us and shaking us around. God does not do that to you in Jesus. You know why? Because the moment that Jesus climbed up on the cross, it was God's spirit compelling him there. When God took the nails in the hands, when Jesus took the nails, the Son of God, in his hands, it was God's spirit compelling him there. The reason that you can't beat yourself up to pay for your sins is because Jesus was beat up to pay for your sins. The reason that God doesn't lift you up and look at you with angry eyes, holding you against the ceiling, is because God poured out all of the wrath that we deserved on Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm here to take it. And when he had taken it all, he said, to tell us I. It's done. It's paid in full. So that now when God looks at you, he says, I love you. Now when you're at your worst of the worst, 
the worst of the worst. After you've just finished cussing out your neighbor, gone home, had a six-pack of Mick Ultras, and you're yelling at your kids, God said, I'm still here for you. I don't like what you're doing. It's destroying your life. Let's get you out of this pattern, but I will love you because Jesus is around you. And for those of you that think you can out what Jesus did on the cross, just say that sentence out loud. Next time you think you're doing that. Because we all do it. I do it. I think that I sin so badly that it's not possible that Jesus would still love me. Today when I got, I, I got a ride to church today with Jared and his wife, and, uh, and they said, it's freezing out. Why are you wearing short sleeves? And I went in this whole thing about, well, the tattoo artist said I can't put fabric on here, blah, 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 blah. And then at the end, I was like, and because I'm vain. Because I want to be like, look at that. I'm so cool. And Jesus still loves me. And Jesus loves you. And until we let our hearts soak in that, the last half of Colossians will make no sense. It'll send you home trying to be a better husband, but without the power to actually do it. Because if you don't have an understanding of God's grace, and that's what we're going to unpack in these first two chapters, we're going to dig deep, then you'll never be able to give that type of grace, a shadow of it to your spouse, to your coworkers, to your friends, to your children. If God's grace isn't planted in your heart, the peace will not grow out of your life. The peace that you desperately want. Well, this is going to be Colossians. I am fired up for this book. So here's your homework for the week. Read and or listen to the book of Colossians. Next week, we're going to cover approximately six verses. It's going to be a little bit more focused. We're going to dig deeper and in. But start asking God to saturate your life with the good news of Jesus. And I don't mean saturate like a little, little dip. I mean like, this is for me, don't judge me. I love bubble baths. Um, there's these things, and women all know about these. They're called bath bombs. So you, I get them at this place over by Disneyland. And, and nobody told me this when I was younger. Otherwise, I would have started purchasing these a long time ago. These little balls, it turns your whole bath into like an Alka-Seltzer heaven. And... Uh, and I love, I love it. It turns the water colors. And my whole life, obviously, you could tell I haven't fit in baths very well. So either, like, my knees are cold or my chest is cold because I'm, I'm long. But now we got this, like, jet bath situation going on. So you got the jets going. I could turn my bath pink. I get out smelling like, uh, like roses and daffodils. I just love it. And I will stay in there so long that not only do my fingers prune, my toes start to prune. And this is how I know I'm getting old. Like my, my skin on other places, like my, my side is getting pruny. It is soaking it all up. And I will sit in there. If you give me a good bottle of cab, I'm done. I'm just going to sit there all night, put Netflix on my phone, drink some wine, bubble bath, smell like a lavender heaven. This is how much we need to soak in the good news of Jesus in the next two months. I'm telling you. Too often, here's what Christians do. We dip our toe in the good news, and then we run to be better and try harder. Rather than soaking in it and finally being like, okay, is this guy ever going to shut up about grace? Now it's time to move on. Now that you're soaked in it, now that you've been enveloped, and now that your life is pruning because there's so much Jesus love saturating your being, now I want to say, Here's what husbanding looks like. Here's what parenting looks like. Here's why you're, you're cussing up a storm at work and you hide it so well at church. Here's why you're not generous and you could be generous. Here, here, here. But until we get soaked there, all of this is going to seem like a burdensome, difficult 
thing. Reading your Bible is going to be a drudgery. Giving to support the chapel, I talked to one couple, I said, why do you love to give so much? And they said, how could we not? You know why? Because they had soaked in there. They were pruned to the core. They were dripping with God's love. And it's when people are gripped and dripping with God's love and drenched in it, only then do we finally find that peace where we can want to read the Bible, where we can finally want to be generous with our neighbor who's going through a difficult time, where we can finally want to love our kids when they're driving us nuts, where we can finally want to stare at our spouse when they're playing our buttons like a Beethoven sonetta, whatever it's called, and then just say, I love you, and you're right, I am that horrible, and Jesus loves me. When you do that in the middle of a fight, it never goes well for me. If you figure it out, husbands, let me know. I mean, it goes well for my soul, but I think my wife wants me to be guilty. And I just say, I can't even be guilty. I'm so loved by Jesus. This could be you. And when it is, and when it is, lives will change. When it is, you're going to find it so much easier to walk across the street to your neighbor and say, man, come to my church. The pastor, he's a little nutty, but just listen to this Jesus guy that we're talking about. He'll change your life. Man, let's pray. God, that you would die for sinners like me and these people here. I I love it. God, may we never be a church where people who sin are not welcome. God, I thank you. I thank you that 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 person that day, that religious person, reminded me that this church family is for sinners and people who know it, not for saints, otherwise known as the pretender types. God, I don't want to be religious. I want to be grace-soaked and saturated. God, I pray that that image, that every person that takes a bath for the next month would not be able to get that image out of their head and that they would be thinking about how much you love them. God, our souls need to be soaked and drenched in your love so that we can rightly produce the peace that you give us in Jesus. We love you. We'll talk to you in a bit.